Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. The last time that we were together with me, not Anthony, we saw Jesus' inoculation of his disciples against hypocrisy, false teaching, and of course, always, there's always an application for us today. Uh, last time, or the last thing he left off with was the fatal error of the rich fools trusting in his own riches and then dying that night. Today, we're going to see Jesus continue to reinforce the theme of seeking the kingdom of God and the parables of both the expectant and faithful servants or stewards to stress the importance of being found doing the will of God as we don't know when he will return. And the nexus between these two messages is the desire and the focus on more of the Lord. So starting in verse 22, let's jump in here. He says, and he said to his disciples, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If then you are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. So the last time again, we saw the parable of the rich fool, and Jesus stretched, stressed being rich towards God. Here Jesus makes the transition from the trusting in riches to the full-blown trusting in God. Jesus uses basic needs to show how God will be faithful to take care of them with their basic needs, and of course, the application is for us also. I, I like to do word studies. I like to take them apart and have fun with them. The word worry, okay, in the Greek it's merimnio, which means distraction. Now, when they translated it to English, they found the word worry. Worry is actually an old Anglo-Saxon word that means to strangle. So you've got these two words here. If you take both of these languages into account, what you get is a distraction from the things of God resulting in anxiety and turmoil of the mind. It's like a symbiotic relationship. They kind of go back and forth and they feed off of each other. If you're distracted and taken away from God, of course you're going to worry more. And the more that you, you're going to have anxiety and turmoil. And the more you have anxiety and turmoil in your life, it's going to pull you further from God. So what you see is this, this downward spiral. They feed off of each other. Chronic worry and anxiety is really a, a, a lack of trust in God. On the other hand, we're not given a license to be lazy or aloof and unconcerned about our responsibilities. Proverbs is very clear that God doesn't bless the lazy. So you have that faith and works things going on. That faith is that trust in God. And the works is the diligence or walking in faith. I think of um, uh, when I was a kid, whatever, that's what we did in the neighborhood. Everybody taught the kids how to box. So I learned how to box. And there was two basic tenets of boxing. One is to block, so you don't get your block knocked off. And the other one is to jab, to keep your opponent off of you. And they have to work together, because if you just block, eventually your opponent's going to realize you're not going after him, and he's going to keep hitting you until you drop your guard, and he's going to knock you out. If you just jab and you don't block, he's going to find your weakness and clock you. So they're not mutually exclusive. They have to work together. You have to block and jab, and it's a constant action that you do. So kind of use boxing there to make sense of this whole faith and works thing. But there's a lot of explanations that you can talk about to explain that concept. And in verse 24, he speaks about these ravens, the birds. I think about our house in the winter. Uh, we have, we were blessed where we live. We have, we're surrounded by somebody's property that they're not developing on. It's all wooded. And we have a lot of birds. Uh, when we get like a foot of snow in the winter, these birds, they don't have shelters or storehouses, like Jesus says in the scripture, but God still provides them. I wonder sometimes, with all that snow in the trees 
and on the ground. All the holes in the ground are covered up. Where do these birds go? But you still see them all winter long in the area. Unfortunately, one of the ways God provides for these birds is my wife. We have 20-pound bags of bird food, cat food, possum food, all kinds of four-footed critters. I feed them all winter long. But God, (laughs) the ravens, the birds in the scripture here, the ravens that he speaks about, according to the Old Testament, were unclean birds. But God still provided for them. So if he provided for these unclean birds, how much more will he provide for us? In verse 25, he says, Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Imagine worrying about your height so much in the hopes that you'll actually grow from worrying about your height. Jesus uses this absurd example to reveal the obvious. Worry accomplishes nothing. Sometimes our attitude and our action towards worry is is if we do it enough, it will actually do something for us. The more we worry, something's going to happen. I see some people smiling and tapping their spouses over there. (laughs) I can see everything from up here. (laughs) But we... Last weekend when Pastor Anthony taught, my wife and I went to a retreat. It was a pastor and pastor's wives retreat. And it was in Lancaster, about two, two hours from here, I suppose. And it was convenient because our, my father-in-law uh, watched my son because he lives in Lancaster. And he was going to take my son even further into Pennsylvania, another two hours to keep turning on a camping trip in the middle of nowhere. A little concerned about that, but okay. So he said... Friday morning, we're going, to, we're going to get to the campgrounds. When we get there safely in the morning, we'll give you a call. I, he says, here's my cell phone number. So Friday morning comes, Friday afternoon, no phone call. Friday night, no phone call. The whole weekend, we didn't get a phone call. So we could either be overcome with worry about our son, or we could just leave it to the Lord and enjoy our time together. We chose the latter. Because worrying wasn't going to accomplish anything. Why well, be miserable and sick the whole weekend and then just to find out Sunday that, that he's fine. Anyway, his cell phone didn't work, so that was the problem. But verse 26, he speaks about, he said, If you're not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? So if worry can't even achieve a minor thing, why worry about anything? Not only is it useful or useless, but it's harmful. The more I study the human body, the more I worship God. And what I mean by that is the human body is so complex, and I just like to study it as a side thing, right? And I'm just amazed at how God put us together. Worry, anxiety, stress. When you do that, when you're in that mode, it releases catabolic hormones. They're destructive hormones. They break complex compounds down into simple compounds. You have your catecholamine release and your corticosteroids. Now, most of you are familiar with the term adrenaline. That's one of your catecholamines. Now, adrenaline is responsible for the fight-or-flight response. If you're faced with a threat, God designed us with this response, and we would have the energy to either fight the threat, fight it off, or say, uh, it's too formidable, and run the other way as fast as you can. So that's that whole fight-or-flight response. But this response affects your essential nervous system, your digestive system, musculoskeletal system, respiratory, circulatory, immune system. Every system possible is affected by this response. The problem is that the body was not designed to handle this protracted state of affairs. God didn't design us to handle that for a long period of time. And in this chronic state, it wears out all those systems that I just mentioned. So stress, if you look it up, uh, you could Google stress, the or the top 10 killers of Americans. Stress is one of the biggest contributors to all the top 10 killers of, of Americans. Kind of reminds me is in the old days uh, when I was young, well, that wasn't the old days, but when I was young, <laughs> we used to hot rod. We used to do things as kids to tweak our cars to make them faster. And one of the things, it's a good thing I never did it because I would have been up a tree, but one of the things some of the neighborhood kids did was they would get the nitrous oxide tanks, the cold shots, and they would mount it in the back of their car, and they'd have a little button, and they'd press it, and it would go right into the motor, and the thing would just push it to its limit. But the thing about the cold shot systems were that if you had a small block Chevy and you could get 100-plus thousand miles out of the motor, you start juicing it with nitrous enough times, you're only going to get like 30,000, 40,000 miles out of it because it wears out the motor. And this is the same thing. This worry, stress, anxiety, it wears out our inside. It ages us. 
And most of the time, we worry about things when there's no threat. So there's really no reason to worry about it, right? Verse 27, he speaks about the lilies. You know, there's a certain type of flower that's so gorgeous that it, put king, it puts King Solomon, uh, one of the greatest kings in influence and wealth, it put him to shame in all his glory. Solomon could have afforded the finest uh, materials and gold and uh, all the accoutrements of being a king. His royal splendor, his robes, right? But even in all his glory, Jesus said that these little lilies that don't toil or spin, they don't worry about how they're going to look. God just makes them beautiful. They put him to shame in their beauty. And what happens with these lilies is that in areas where there was a scarcity of wood, they would cut these lilies, beautiful plants, they would cut them down and they would dry them out in the sun and they would use them for fuel in their ovens to bake bread or whatever because there was a scarcity of wood. So Jesus is saying if, if God clothes these gorgeous flowers that are here today and tomorrow are discarded and put in the oven, then how much more will he take care of you, O you of little faith? Verse 29, he says, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. Philippians 4.6 tells us that we should be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If you start feeling that come on, this is your instructions. This is the instruction manual. Be anxious for nothing. Go to the Lord. Go to prayer. Start, start speaking to your Father in heaven. Ask for supplications. Thank him for the things he's done. And, you know, make your requests known to him. That's our instructions when we start to get anxious. Should we be worried at all? Matthew 6.34, uh, Jesus adds... He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day's its own trouble. It's kind of interesting how he puts something that's inanimate and saying it'll worry about itself. Just like, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's tomorrow. And the Bible tells us that, you know, we're, we're blessed if we have another day of life. We don't know if any of us are going to be here tomorrow, right? Al talked about that sermon he did in Scotland where he said, you don't know if you have another day. And the lady fell down in the front row, right? Well, she didn't die, but, you know, it could happen. So we don't know if we're going to have another day. Um, God didn't design us to get ahead of ourselves. He didn't design us to be addicted and distracted by all the crazy, you know, fast-paced life that we live here. Uh, think about cell phones. Sometimes if we're driving somewhere and the phone rings, my wife gives me that look like, you're not going to answer that, are you? <laughs> Let it go to voicemail. But we can get addicted to our technology, addicted to what we have to do in the office, think addicted to what we have to do about tomorrow and our projects and so on and so forth. Uh, emails and, and crackberries. You guys know what a crackberry is? <laughs> you business people do. Uh, little blackberries, they're like a little device. I don't have one. I'm not going to get one. Um, it's a little device that you can get your cell phone messages on, your voicemail, your emails, anything, any way that somebody could contact you, you can get it on this Crackberry or Blackberry. But they call it a Crackberry because it's addictive. You're addicted to the office, right? Uh, there was a Rutgers professor that I wrote, or I wrote, I read two days ago about a Rutgers professor who wrote this article predicting lawsuits. He said that these things are so addicting to business people that even if they're home, no matter where they are, they're still tied to the office. They're chained to the office. They're addicted to the office, and their personal lives are suffering because of it. So this guy actually predicted what he wrote a well-written piece on possibility of lawsuits coming up. Now, uh, see, my assistant pastor has one. I have to bust his chops because, see, when I was away, he doesn't think I listened to the messages. First 16 minutes, he's already calling me Joey Cuckoo Seal. What's that about? When the cats are away, the mice will play. But anyway, chronic anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, these are conditions that which incapacitate some people. When I was a kid, uh, there was a, a man in the neighborhood who was a, I think he was a Vietnam War veteran. He had seen combat. He came back from the war. And every 4th of July, when the kids would throw the firecrackers in the street and the, all the popping, his wife would come out, very nice lady, and say, please don't do that. You know, his, her husband had like shell shock. You know, he, whenever he heard a, a, a report like that, he, it would bring him back to his days in, in Vietnam. So it was really difficult for this man. Now, I know my Lord and Savior. 
This isn't who Jesus was talking to. Jesus wasn't saying to a guy like that, hey, get over it, you know. That's not what he's talking about. On the other hand, I've used myself as an example. Uh, about eight years ago, I struggled with chronic anxiety, and uh, it took me out for a while. I was out of work, and uh, it was a really tough time in my life. But I f- if I look back at my life, and I look at my life prior to that time, I let everything bother me. Everything bothered me, every stupid little thing. If somebody owed me five bucks, that bothered me, right? And to the point where it became pathological in my life, and it was, it was an ingrained behavior that I, I was following. Plus, I also led a godless life, so I certainly brought on my own stressors. So in my situation, uh, I definitely could have uh, changed my lifestyle. I mean, I, I, I believe that if I would have known the Lord at a young age, that probably wouldn't have happened. But to a person with a serious condition, I would say this to you. Number one, there's healing in the Lord. That's very clear from Scripture. There's healing in the Lord. The second thing is, I would expect that if somebody was to come to the Lord and had that type of condition, uh, I would expect their condition to improve. I I wouldn't even blink about that. I would believe that uh, receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior, right away their condition would start to improve. But to the rest of us who worry about everything, it's a distraction from God, shows at times we don't feel we trust him, and also physiologically it's hazardous to our health. So these are three reasons not to be a chronic worrier. In verse 30, Jesus says, For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. The nations. These are the people who don't know God. It was the Jewish people, the monotheists, the ones who knew Yahweh, the true God, right? And then there was everybody else who were polytheists and pagans and all that other kind of stuff. So when he speaks about the nations, uh, he speaks about the people that don't know God. They worry about these things. They're anxious about these things. Uh, Strive to survive is their motto. But let let that not be said about God's people who have a history of God taking care of them. What does it say about us if we're no different than our unsaved neighbor when it comes to worry? How do we expect our pagan neighbor to put his trust in God when our life reveals that we don't do it ourselves, right? There's a cliche, and I would ask you today, does that cliche apply to you? If you've been a Christian for some time, somebody has said this to you or said this about you, and it goes like this. What is it about you that you have so much peace in your life? Over time, God starts to refine us. He starts to change us. We start to trust him more. And people see that when tragedies happen in our lives, that we're different. We don't fall apart at the drop of a hat. So the question is, is that cliche true regarding us, right? Verse 31, uh, again, he says, Seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. But do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Priorities. Every profession has priorities, a protocol, some type of priority. I'm going to quiz you. As a police officer, I get dispatched to a call. It's in the middle of a major highway. There's three cars. One of them's overturned, and there's injuries. I pull up to the scene. There's blood. There's people out in the street, and people are bleeding. How many of you raise your hand and think the first thing that I should do is treat the injured? Raise your hand. I caught some of you. Some of you knew I was setting you up, so you didn't raise your hand. The fir- and I got that wrong on the first police test, by the way, that I ever took. Oh, yeah, treat the injured. The first thing that you do, the priority is to take the police car and block off the scene from the rest of the traffic because they're going to keep going. They don't care if people are injured. You see it all the time. They'll just keep driving. They'll run people over. So the first thing you do as a police officer is secure the scene. You've got to position your police car so that when you get out and help the person in the middle of the street, you both don't get run over. So there's priorities. There's priorities in everything in life. So if there's priorities that you can follow simply in your job, where are our priorities as Christians? Once we get that straight, that God is our priority, everything else falls into place. What do we put in front of God? And what things will be added to us? What is Jesus saying? A new beamer, a second shore house, an easy life? Hardly, hardly. Our needs will be added to us. And certainly, some of our desires, the desires of our heart, because God loves us. He wants to give us, 
give us good gifts. If he doesn't believe that those gifts that we're asking for will hurt us, then he won't give it to us. I think about my son. I want to bless my son, you know, little six-year-old boy. Man, he, he's like his dad. He loves chocolate. He's got some sweet tooth. And he'll bargain with me. He'll, he'll be like, Dad, can I have ten Hershey's Kisses? And I'll say, three. And he'll go, how about four? Okay, you could have four. So we bargain, because I know too much Hershey, Hershey's Kisses will make him sick. <laughs> now, I had some friends come over, and I wonder if they're listening out in the hall. James and Marty, yeah, he's laughing back there. He knows the story. I had some friends come over one night, and we were, it was a guy's night. We watched Black Hawk Down and some, some war movies. And my son was there. My wife went out with her friends. This was some years back. And they thought it would be funny when I wasn't looking to just keep feeding him Hershey's Kisses. <laughs> yeah. Towards the end of the movie, I couldn't understand why he was running around the house doing crazy things. Like, what's wrong with you? And then I saw all the rappers. And you know what? I guess I had a good laugh. It was all funny until mommy came home. <laughs> and it wasn't funny anymore. But as a parent, you, you, just, you don't want to give, even though your child wants something and you want to give them good things, sometimes too much of a good thing is bad for them, right? As we saw. Verse 32, not only will God provide for our needs, but he will give us the kingdom. Wow, what more could we ask for? Your heavenly father wants to give you the kingdom, not piddly stuff, not silly temporal stuff that we're looking for, but God wants to give us the kingdom. Um, you know, what more could we ask for? Jesus says little flock. Now, does that mean he's speaking about the disciples because there was a few of them there? Or does it mean that it's very interesting. He is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. John 10, right? But also little flock. Is that a reference to few people finding the narrow path? It's an interesting question. Verse 33, the real riches here are eternal riches. Don't be so stingy with, you, with what you have because you're saving for the future. Look at the parable of the rich fool. He was stingy. He had so much stuff that he built bigger barns and bigger storage facilities and, and you know, filled them up again. And that night the Lord said to him, your life is required of you. What, what, what does he do when he stands before God? knowing that he could have used all his, uh, his goods to help people or to further the kingdom of heaven. I, put myself, uh, I used to put myself on a yearly tithing budget, and that didn't work very well because by the time fall came, I started to panic because <laughs> I wasn't where I wanted to be in earmark. So now I'm on a quarterly tithing budget. But it's funny because people will say, well, why should you, you tithe? You're the pastor because God's not a respecter of man. He's not a respecter of people. I'm not exempt. And the other thing is that I can't wait for God to show me that all the years I've been a Christian and I've been tithing, I can't wait for him to show me what that, those resources did, my money, my time, my energy. I don't know. Maybe he'll show me um, a portion of Asia that I never knew existed, where you know, 300 people in a village came to the Lord Jesus because we supported missionaries. That's the beautiful thing. I can't wait for him to show me the fruit of what I've put into, you know, and, and that's what's something that we have to look at. Not to be stingy for ourselves, but to f try to further the kingdom of heaven. And verse 34, he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And that goes for everything. It's whatever you put your time, your attention, and your resources in. Are we putting treasures and building empires here, or are we using unrighteous mammon, as it says in Luke 16, to further the kingdom of heaven? And here's another good question is, do we put our resources into people or do we look at people as just another resource for us? That's a very, very um, you know, poignant question there. Do we put our resources into people or do we look at people as just another resource for us? Show me a great Christian man or Christian woman and I'll show you somewhere down the line a mentor who poured into that person. So why does, his, why does Jesus instruct his disciples on worry? I don't know, maybe Jesus sensed worry in their hearts as they left all and, and you know, time was starting to, to go by. They left their families, their retirement plans, their 401ks to follow Jesus. I don't know. And, you know, how would they and their families be provided for? The other question or, or the other point may be, maybe after all Jesus' talk about the coming crucifixion, they started to get it. And maybe fear started welling up in their hearts a little bit about what would happen after Jesus was gone. But many times God creates in us an unwavering faith by allowing us to go through dark times to test us, 
to try us, to perfect us, to see if we will worry ourselves sick or trust in him as God our Father. When we were on the uh, retreat last weekend, there was this pastor. He was uh, from uh, Calvary Chapel, Miami. His name was Pastor Raz Vasquez. And he said, this stuff about trials and worry and trusting is all great to teach from until the Lord says, okay, now we're going to walk through it. He goes, I hate that part. (laughs) I don't really like it that much either, but you know what? It's necessary. It's definitely necessary. Trusting God as our Father for all of our needs. I kind of make the analogy with my son again. Four things my son has never asked me. Now, you know, six-year-olds, five-year-olds, four-year-olds, they ask you a million questions. Those of you who have kids, they ask you every ridiculous question under the sun until you just say, I'll answer it tomorrow, you know, or go ask your mother. <laughs> Poor kid, he has to go back and forth. But four things my son has never asked me. Number one, Daddy, who's going to provide my next meal for me? Second question, Daddy, when I go to sleep tonight, will I have to sleep outside or will we still have our home? Third question, Daddy, when I grow out of these clothes, will you provide new ones for me? Four, Daddy, when we go out as a family, will you forget to bring me home or will you leave me at the restaurant? Questions he's never asked me. Why? Out of all the questions a kid could ask his mother or his father, because he trusts us. So if a six-year-old can get it, why can't we? knowing that our Heavenly Father is far better of a parent than I could be or my wife could be put together or any of us in this room could be. How come we don't get it sometimes? What are you worried about today? Is it your kids? Is it retirement? Is it a job? Is it your love life? Is it your reputation? Some future event? What is it? Don't ask me how he does it, but if you truly trust in him, he never lets you down. There was a... um, situation oh two years back maybe and i was sent to a call and there's a woman who had to leave where she was she was a single mom with two kids no family in the area they lived in another state several states down south and uh you know i we had to find a place for her to go because she she couldn't stay where she was anymore and she was in the back of the patrol car and i was talking to her you know telling her about the lord praying with her gave her a bible and i said to her God's, God's going to do something for you. If you really trust God, he will provide for you. And I've got to tell you, 99% of me was gung-ho. There was 1% of me that said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You say something that big. Look at her condition. I mean, this was the flesh. Look at, that. Look at the condition she's in. Her kids aren't even with her right now. She's got nothing. How can you say that to her? 99% of me, though, was gung-ho. But we look at people's situations and we get blinded by the temporal. Do you know... Um, that I saw her recently and I didn't recognize her because she was at a place where uh, there was a function for her kids where uh, it it wasn't a cheap place to to, to bring her kids. She was doing well and I I kept staring at her, but I was like, no, it can't be her. And she looked at me and she goes, I remember you. And and it, it, it all came back to me. I remember the time in the patrol car talking to her and we tried to help her out and all, but you know, it was a bad situation. She was doing much better, and the Lord really took care of her, and she's still here. Can you believe that? So, you know, God just continues to blow me away. He just continues to blow me away. You've got to believe. If you don't believe, you've got to believe. Trust him. He could take the worst situation and make it great. I hear stories from missionaries in uh, these, uh, you know, less developed countries where there's nothing. There's no hospitals. There's no welfare. There's nothing. And the Lord does incredible things and provides for these people in these villages. It just totally knocks my socks off. It's amazing. But I've got to tell you right now, he will, he's not going to supply an, a never-ending wish list. If it's a selfish wish list and it's a never-ending wish list, God's not the celestial Santa Claus. He's, he's just not that. But he will supply our needs. And I've got to tell you now, we all need to be saved. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're here today, it's no accident that you're here listening to his word. Let the word penetrate your heart. Excessive worry, wrapping it up, is a distraction from God. And those over-focused on the temporal are not useful to further the kingdom of God. As is Jesus' usual style, he illustrates a parable. He uses a parable to illustrate this point. And these next few verses are unique to Luke's gospel. There's no parallels uh, in any of the other gospels. Verse 35, he says, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master 
And when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. A dedicated servant would wait for his master, and they had like these robes. The robes were, were able to, uh, you know, there was like a cloak, and they were able to, you know, uh, get shelter from the elements and all. But if they had to do some work, girding the waist meant they would take the, the uh, superfluous part of the robe and they would tuck it into their, their waistband and they would be able to move around, work, whatever they had to do. So that would be girding of the waist. And to keep the lamps lit, all that meant was that, you know, again, there was no street lights back then, so they had these little oil lamps that they would light and they would keep it lit. So when the master came home, the, the servant could see what he was doing and prepare for the master when he came home. So it would facilitate serving. It was a picture of preparedness, readiness, and diligence. 36 and 7, so here's the, the master comes home and he knocks and you know, the servant is going to open the door for him. The expectant servant's reward for staying awake and ready to receive and serve the master is the master serves him. Kind of unusual, but it's a picture of well done thy good and faithful servant. Welcome to the joy of the Lord. It's, the, it's a picture of in Revelation, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we go to heaven, God has already prepared the banquet for us. We all get to sit down and enjoy. The master serves us because we've been faithful with what he has given us. So this parable reinforces what Jesus just taught on. Not to be distracted or worried about the cares of this world, but focusing on the master who obviously represents the Lord. In verse 38, it speaks about the second or third watch. The second watch was between 9 p.m. and 12 midnight, and the third watch was between 12 midnight and 3 in the morning. So it was an inconvenient time to still be awake. But with a lot of these uh, banquets, it wasn't unusual, especially a wedding banquet, for a person who was a guest to get back really late from the banquet. And this was a picture of the Lord coming back for us when we least expect it. Uh, and we'll see that in the next verse. Or possibly when least convenient for the typical person. People, people have, you know, fill in the blank, it's a wedding, a major life event, a child being born, no matter what it is, people have a, a hesitation. Well, I hope the Lord doesn't come back until well, this or to that event, right? What are you looking forward to over your master's return? There really shouldn't be anything because the Lord's going to work it out. It's all going to work out. It's, if we trust him and our heart is in the right place, then it really doesn't matter what event we're waiting for here. We'd be looking for him first. In verse 39 through 40, obviously, nobody knows the time a burglar comes in to break into your house. In all my years as a, as a police officer, I've been a road cop for 15 years. I've handled a lot of burglaries, investigated a lot of burglaries. I don't remember any time that a burglar actually called the victim and made an appointment. Yeah, Mrs. Jones? Yeah, yeah, this is your local burglar. Um, I'll be there Saturday about 9 o'clock. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kick in the front door, I'm gonna get your pillowcase, put the jewelry in, I'm going to go out the back door. Don't get in my way. Uh, yeah, yeah. just make sure you stay out of my way. Okay, see you then, bye. It never happens. And if somebody did that, they would certainly be on the internet as the world's dumbest crook. So <laughs> Jesus isn't liking, likening himself to a burglar except for the fact that at, like a thief in the night, like a burglar, nobody will know the time that Jesus comes back for us. That's why we're not supposed to set dates. It's all the more reason to live life every day as if he was coming back today in terms of our Christian walk. By a show of hands, how many people here expect Jesus Christ to come back tonight? <laughs> so most of you don't. So maybe he will come back tonight. Who knows? But how embarrassing. Think about this. As a Christian, you know, you're bought with the Lord's blood. How embarrassing would it be if he came back at a time where you were in a serious state of backsliding or persistent sin or living your life to fill yourself and, and not living it to further the kingdom of heaven? How embarrassed would you be? Very embarrassed, I'm sure. 
Okay, uh, I believe Jesus here is speaking, when he speaks about coming back, I believe he's speaking about the rapture as opposed to the second coming. Why? Because just as the first coming was calculated, if you look at Daniel chapter 9, uh, they were all, a lot of them were expecting. The religious leaders were expecting the Messiah. Some of the disciples were expecting the, the, the Messiah. Everybody was tense because according to Daniel 9's prophecy, it, was, it would have been any day now that the Messiah was going to come in that time era. There was a window of opportunity that came and went 2,000 years ago, right? So just as the first coming was able to be calculated, the second coming is able to be calculated based on the 70 Shabua in the Hebrew. And Shabua just means a period of sevens, like our decade means ten. And it's, it's a whole calculation that we're going to get into as we get towards the end of, uh, the, of the book of Luke, which I'll go into some end times prophecies. But Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter uh, 7, and Revelation chapter 11. You can calculate the time up to the second coming. But Jesus here is saying that it'll become, he'll come at a time when you don't expect. That's why I believe it's the rapture. Uh, another reason to support the rapture is that I believe it has to do with human nature. Why doesn't Jesus tell us when he's going to come back? It's human nature. Loopholes. You know, you see the legal system. Everybody's got a loophole. It's disingenuous conversions and disingenuous service. And let me explain. We've all told a friend, family member, a neighbor about the rapture and, and how the Lord's going to come back for his people and then what's going to happen after the rapture, if you're pre-trib, of course. Uh, no one's, I hope no one has told your neighbors what date it was going to be. But if you told your neighbors what date it was going to be because the Bible set it forth, well, what would those people do? What if your unsafe family members knew that January 1st, 2007, the Lord was going to come back? They would party hardy and live like pagans until the night before. They'd get down on their knees, oh, Lord, I repent, please accept me and be good that whole day, right? It's a disingenuous conversion. What about with Christians? There's a lot of Christians who, whose lives, unfortunately, are lived no different than their uh, unsafe family and friends. And they're not serving the Lord. They're not in tune with the Lord. And they're going to do the same thing. If it was January 1st, 2007, maybe they'd wait a month before and start doing really good works that whole month and know that <laughs> New Year's Eve, they really better get down on their knees and say, okay, Lord, will you accept me? So that's why the Lord doesn't want us to set dates, because we'd be saving our own skin. He knows us. He made us. And he knows how we try to manipulate the system. Uh, so if, if we knew when he came, it would nullify the command to be watchful that he's talking about, as opposed to having an appointment, right? The Jehovah Witnesses uh, prophesied Jesus' return starting in the late 1800s and all the way up until 1970, several prophecies about Jesus' return. And obviously, he didn't return yet, but what would happen is the night before, the faithful Jehovah Witness people would sell everything they had, or maybe the month before, and they would you know, give it to the mission fields and work for the Lord. And when the, the day came and went and Jesus didn't come back, they were poor, humiliated, and devastated. But they were looking for an appointment, and no appointment will be given. Next is the parable of the faithful steward, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, verse 41 it says, then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? Peter asked a question, and Jesus answered that question, of course, with another parable. Verse 42, it says, and the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant when his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master has delayed his coming and begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he was not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. So Jesus is asked, who then? Jesus answers the question by making the demarcation of two groups of people. Not necessarily the disciples and everyone else, as Peter was asking, but not the red and the blue states, you know. It has to do with who is the faithful steward and who is not. A steward by definition, and in that culture, was a servant put in charge of the master's affairs. We are stewards, in a sense, as Christians, because think about it. I have a home, I've got, you know, I'm married, I have my son, I've got, God's blessed me with a lot of really neat stuff. Uh, possessions. 
those come from God. I can't claim any of that. The Lord's blessed me. And I have to treat them as, you know, everything is the Lord's. And I'm, you know, using my stuff, hopefully, to further the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual gifts, whatever gifts God has given me, teaching, evangelism, some of you, administration, helps, healing, whatever your gifts are, the Lord has given you those gifts. And like the parable of the talents, he expects you to use them to further the kingdom of heaven. The gospel message, the most precious thing on the planet, in the universe, that God has given us to use as stewards. So we're stewards. In verse 45, something interesting takes place here. It says, but if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat the maidservants and men servants and eat and drink and be drunk. You have a change of heart here with this person. He says in his heart. Now, the Hebrew word for heart is lieb, which encompasses the intellect, the will, and the emotion. Everything really that makes us unique, who we are, right? The body goes to the ground, but who we are, where, where's, the, where's the delineation between what happens in the brain itself and, and non-physical thoughts? I don't know. But the heart was a picture of the emotion, the will, and the intellect. It really has nothing to do with that four-chamber cardiac muscle that sits in your chest behind the sternum a little bit to the left. Nothing to do with that. But the Hebrew was a very uh, picturesque language, and it actually comes out in, in the English. Uh, in the Hebrew, we talk about my innards, uh, my bowels, you know. Hopefully you don't think with your bowels, but, you know, you, you get the picture, right? So a distinction is made here in verse 46 now. Uh, the master comes on a day when he's not looking for him, okay, just like we said before, and he's not aware. The guy's not, the, the servant's not aware, and he will cut him in two, pretty heavy. And he will point him his portion with the unbelievers. So there's a distinction made, and he's appointed with the unbelievers or the unfaithful. Now, I'm going to have to take this apart because this is actually, uh, a lot of people disagree on this, these especially three verses. So I'm going to try to really explain it here. The word for unfaithful or unbeliever is, in the Greek, there's different words. There's faith, which is uh, pistis, and there's believe, which is like a verb of faith. It's pistiu. It comes from the same root, right? So there's the noun, faith, and there's the verb, believe. And there's also the adjective or the descriptor, which is pistos, which is faithful or, or believing. It can be either one of them contextually, depending on where it is. The word here is apistos, and we talked before that a in the Greek means not or un. So the word here in context is unfaithful or unbelieving, okay? So it appears this guy's now assigned, this wicked servant, he's assigned a portion with the unbelievers or the unfaithful. So that indicates that he was, was he a believer at first? Now that's the question. Was he in one camp and God put him in another camp because of his behavior? Um, that's the big question. There's a, a, a term called unconditional eternal security, or once saved, always saved. Now, people fiercely disagree and, and come on different sides of this, this particular uh, this subject. The question is, can you reject or walk away from your faith once you're a, a Christian? And there's solid people on both sides of the spectrum that debate this, right? Chuck Smith at a pastor's conference two, three years ago, East Coast Pastors Conference used Chuck Templeton. I don't know if any of you ever heard him uh, as, as a proof text. This was a man who was Billy Graham's protege. Uh, he knew the scriptures very well. He was a great evangelist. He bore a lot of fruit. He did a lot of things with the youth. Uh, people said he's going to blow away Billy Graham. He's going to be the shining star. Sometime later in his life, he fell into a sin and he walked away from the Lord and he, he became a self-proclaimed atheist and wrote a book against God. Now, the interesting thing is I don't think that he necessarily became an atheist. I think that he just rebelled against God, and, and I don't know what happened to him on his deathbed. You know, I, I don't know that much. I read some about his biography. But you know, the question is, was he ever saved? Did he, was he saved, and did he reject his salvation? That's the question. Well, some people would say saved is, is past tense. It's a destination. Max Herrera believes that, a very smart man. Uh, if saved is the destination then you, you find yourself in hell. You were never saved to begin with. And if you're taking notes, some, this is a time to definitely take notes. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where these people come to Jesus and say, look, we did this in your name. We, we did that in your name. Uh, and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So he never knew them. On the other hand, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and we'll take, we'll take both sides here because I think it's worth exploring. 
I think too many pastors gloss this over because they're afraid to discuss it because it's a, it's a very polarizing subject. But I, I want to dig into it, and I'll let you, you be the judge. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Now, the context of Hebrews is that the author is speaking to uh, Jewish believers who, maybe because of persecution or because of other things, they're going to fall away from the faith. So he's encouraging them to stay firm and rooted in the faith. And he says this in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. We can guess that that's, you know, the gospel. And have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, that kind of seems like conversion, being a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. That word fall away is parapipto, which means to apostatize. And that's, there's another word that's used to mean apostatize when the churches at large in the end times, they're rooted in sound doctrine and they fall away from that sound doctrine, the great apostasy that happens. Again, very interesting scripture to cover. The bottom line here is, and a brother and I debated this on Friday, and you know, in a, in a very friendly manner because we're both rooted in Christ. So the bottom line is, taking all that back and bring it back, if you're in Christ and you're bearing fruit, who cares? Right? It's a moot point. It's something that you can talk about, but if you're, if you're bearing fruit and you're in Christ, it doesn't matter. And actually, you satisfy both extremes. In the one sense, if you're an Arminianist, where they believe that it's very easy to lose your salvation, or, or if you don't maintain it with uh, bearing fruit or good works, um, you're satisfying that because you're in Christ. So you satisfy that, that side. If you're a Calvinist, where they believe once saved, always saved, no matter what you do, uh, and you can't reject or give back your salvation, and you're rooted in Christ and you're bearing fruit, you satisfy them because you wouldn't dream of giving back your salvation, right? So you kind of satisfy both extremes. But the bottom line is the focus always has to come back to Christ, and then everything becomes clearer. So the denial of Jesus' return, okay, going back to him coming back, the, den the denial of his return is dire directly relational to the downward spiral in a, in a person's walk. There's certainly organizations bearing the Christian name, but they deny Jesus' return, they deny the second coming, and they, their mission, not coincidentally, is to build empires here. And we talk about an individual, now we talk about organizations. That's a dangerous place to be in a church that where they, they don't believe in the second coming. And it's just not on their, on their radar screen. They don't discuss it. Because in that mindset, if you're denying the Lord's return, then everything that's dear to you is here. And that's where you're going to build your empire. 46 through 48, I'm going to read it again. Um, well, I should read 47. It says, And that servant who knew his master's will... This is a second guy here. That servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. There's a third guy here. But he who did not know yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So you have three groups of people here. You have the first guy who got the harshest punishment. He was cut in two and appointed with the, the unbelievers. A good proof text for that, if you're taking notes, is 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. Many will argue that because the, the first guy was a steward and he was head of the manservants and the maidservants, that he was a head, head uh, servant or steward and that uh, that's a picture of the false teachers or false ministers of the gospel. So 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22 covers that. Uh, the second group is a guy who, who knew his master's will, did not prepare himself or do according to his will, will be beaten with many stripes. This could be, again, and I'm not saying that this is hard and fast, but this could be Matthew 7, 21 through 23, which we spoke about before, the false conversions. Uh, and the third one, where it says that this person did not know but committed things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few. This could be the unbeliever who knew little, uh, who knew very little. And that could be covered in Romans 2. Uh, people ask the question about, what about somebody who's never heard? What about, what about? All I can tell you is that God is a fair God. He's a fair God. Um, and if, he, if he's requiring us to do something 
uh, I believe that he would give us the opportunity. So, and, and other scriptures, again, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which we covered. Another good one is Hebrews 10, 23 through 29. So, and those two could be inserted for the first guy. Beaten with many stripes, beaten with few stripes, cut in two, appointed with the unbelievers. I can only surmise that this is a picture of hell. My son, we were eating dinner yesterday, and uh, you never know what kids are going to come out with. And he said, he goes, Daddy, hell is a place where it's dark, and there's fire, and there's poisonous bats. I, I, when he started saying that, wow, man, he's good. And he said poisonous bats. I didn't teach him that. I don't know where that came from. Who knows? <laughs> but we know that those true to the faith get welcomed into the kingdom as those who die in Christ know that he's already took the punishment we deserve. So these people, it's definitely eternal punishment. We, Jesus already took our punishment on the cross. There's no more punishment for us if we're in Christ. So the question is, where are you today? Have you rested in the punishment that Christ took for you? Where is your focus? I'm going to leave you with this analogy before we close. If I, and I'll say this for the purpose of the audio, if I'm standing at the top of the stage and the, and the congregation is in front of me and I take my index finger and I hold it out in front of me and I focus on my index finger, I can see one of my index finger clearly and everybody behind, all your faces are blurry and there's two of every of you and I feel like I've got to do two services and I'm panicking. But if I hold my finger out in front of me between me and the congregation and I, I see my finger, but now I focus on all your faces out in the congregation, I see two of my finger and my fingers are blurry. Just like God can't, he, he designed our eyes so that we can't see near and far at the same time clearly. We have to focus on one or the other. The same way God doesn't allow us to focus on the temporal or the spiritual at the same time. We're either going to see one clearly and the other one blurry, or we're going to see the one blurry and the other one clearly. The choice is yours which one you want to focus on, just like when you use your eyes every day, focusing without even thinking about it. What are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on the temporal, or are you going to focus on the spiritual? Whether it's greediness, which was covered, worry, hypocrisy, self-centeredness, once saved, always saved, pre-trib, post-trib, millennialist, amillennialist, exegesis, isogesis, isometrics, barometrics, Greek lexicons or green leprechauns, whatever it is, it, it all moves in the distance as a blur when your focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be watching and waiting for him. So the question is, where is your focus? Is it worry or is it watchful and waiting? Focus on the spiritual.